So, uh, this is a series of classes called the Principal Teachings of Buddhism. And uh, my plan is to teach four classes on this particular topic. And the, the main thing that we're going to be looking at is a, um, a system called the Lam Rim. And this is the, one of the big innovations that came out of Tibetan Buddhism. And Lam Rim is the steps on the path. And so it's like, a, um, it's like an assembling, assembly line process. Step A to Z, start the beginning as a suffering schmuck, mired in samsara, go through the sequence, you come out on the other end a perfected being with a perfect body and a perfect mind and total omniscience and total love and compassion, equanimity towards all beings. So the, the Lam Rim was initially developed by um, uh, Lord Atisha, who came from India. He was an Indian pundit who was invited to Tibet. He was one of the earliest Tibetan teachers, uh, one of the earliest Buddhist teachers to come to Tibet. Um, but the Lam Rim was really developed more fully um, later on by the founder of the Gelukpa lineage, the Geluk lineage, which is one of the four main branches of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, his name is Jaitsongkhapa. And uh, Jaitsongkhapa lived from 1357 to 1419. He was a, um, a major innovator and reformer of Buddhism in Tibet. Uh, the Geluk school is the only system, the only school of Buddhism that formed in Tibet. The other systems of Buddhism were imported uh, from India or Nepal or other areas of Asia and um, were then Tibetanized, you know, um, you know, merged with the Tibetan culture. Um, but the Gelukpa school, which is the, the most modern school of Buddhism to be developed, uh, is really a Tibetan innovation. And Jaitsongkhapa is really the guy who's behind that. So we're going to, uh, and so the Lam Rim as a genre can branch texts from anywhere from as short as 14 verses, like a brief poem, up to hundreds and hundreds of pages. So we're going to start here in this court, in this course, in this class, with the shortest Lam Rim that I know of, which is uh, a poem called "The Three Principal Paths," written by Jaitsongkhapa. And um, so, it, there's a handout here, as you see, and the handout is includes the reading. There is the complete poem of the Three Principal Paths, and then after that is quite a bit more reading which includes um, commentary, explanation, and exposition by a man named Pabonka Rinpoche. Um, Pabonka Rinpoche is, um, <clears throat> he lived from 1878 to 1941, so he's a contemporary Buddhist master. He um, uh, lived in Tibet, and he was kind of a rock star in, the, in Tibetan Buddhist world. He had a powerful physical presence, a very loud speaking voice. They didn't really have amplification, and so he would teach to huge auditoriums of people, and he could project. He, had, he was like famous for having a barrel chest, and he could project his voice, and everybody could hear him clearly in the space. So, um, and he was also famous because, of course, Tibet is set up as a monastic society, so that means 20-30% of the society was living in um, monasteries, um, monks and nuns living in monasteries. So, <clears throat> of course, most of the Dharma instruction was taking place in the Buddhist monastery universities, um, but Pabonka Rinpoche was a populist, and so he taught um, openly to the public. He taught um, to lay people, ordinary people, all the time. 
And so he was a very popular figure in Tibetan Buddhism, not just for being a brilliant scholar and an orator, but also because he connected it with um, normal people's lives. He didn't try to like, you know, keep it in a reliquary where only, you know, certain people had access to it. He taught Dharma in ways that it was accessible to everybody. Um, so the, the handout includes the poem and uh, the poem by J. Tsongkhapa, The Three Principal Paths, and um, Pabongka Rinpoche's commentary. Uh, everything, so everything in the, in the outline, we're going to follow the outline, and everything in the outline is um, also expanded upon in the reading. Here we have only class one outline, but um, as we go on, there's going to be a, a handout for each of these four classes that are going to comprise this Principal Teachings of Buddhism kind of mini course. So the, the Lam Rim is, um, is broken into three major, um, three major divisions, three major categories. And these are, 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 these are the three principal paths that the poem is named for. Um, sometimes you'll hear people translate this as the three principles of the path, but um, my understanding and the teachings that I've received has, has suggested that that's not a, as an accurate trans, translation as the three principal paths. Each of the paths is distinct, um, but each one is the foundation for the subsequent path. So the, the three principal paths are called loosely the, the steps shared with practitioners of lesser scope, the steps shared with practitioners of medium scope, and the steps shared with practitioners of greater scope. And right away, we, we encounter one of the major potential pitfalls, which is that, well, I belong in the greater scope, obviously. Um, why would I bother with the lesser and medium scopes if I can just, like, jump into the, to the greater scope? But as I mentioned, these are, uh, they're, uh, hierarchical is not really the right, right word, but each is built upon the previous. So starting at the, you know, starting at the third principal path, uh, practitioner steps shared with practitioners of greater scope would be like moving into the third floor of a house before you built the foundation in the first floor. That's obviously not going to work, right? Um, but it's a, it's I, I think it's a common pitfall with the spiritual path for beginners and experienced practitioners alike. You know, we get this whole long rim gestalt, and then we think that because we have learned, we've studied it and read it and heard it, we're supposed to be at the end already. But actually, we're getting a big picture overview. So the point of the the point of this, the point of the Lam Rim and the three principal paths, is so that you can get a sense of what the map is, of what the territory is, and then find yourself on the map so you know what practices are going to work for you for the level that you're particularly at. So the, what the three principal paths, um, what the three principal paths are. Are, they're called um, renunciation, which is the, uh, the, the goal and the culmination of the steps shared with practitioners of lesser scope. The goal is to uh, acquire a realization that's called renunciation. Um, the steps shared with practitioners of middle scope, the goal, the objective, the, the practices that you're focusing on are developing what's called bodhicitta, and I'll go into this in more detail in a second. And the, the goal and the objective and the, the practices 
of the steps shared with practitioners of greater scope is based around developing wisdom or correct worldview or uh, uh, an understanding of emptiness or voidness. Again, these are technical terms. So, um, renunciation. I mean, renunciation, first of all, sounds like we're going to have to give up something good, right? We're going to have to we're going to have to like give up all of our nice things, you know? But renunciation actually means to uh, renounce a suffering life, renounce um, recreating the causes to be stuck in a cycle of endless re future rebirths driven by self-cherishing. And so uh, renunciation is, uh, it's really about recognizing that trying to micromanage our materialist life isn't going to produce true, lasting, real satisfaction and happiness. That realizing that in the material world, we, the things we work for, or anything that happens to us, things that work for bad things or good things, right? They, they arrive, they last for a little while, and then they fade away. And that's just the nature of all things. And this is part of how karma works, right? You know, when a karmic seed ripens, the, that's what causes the thing to emerge. And then the karmic seed's not going to last forever, though. Things that are caused have a have an end. That's like one of the definitions of things that are... Things that come about through causes also go away when those causes run out. So recognizing that, like, micromanaging our job and our career and our relationships isn't really going to cause any lasting happiness. We're going to lose all of those things at death, if not sooner. And if we invest in those things, if we put our whole heart and soul and invest our value as a human being in these transient things, we're constantly going to feel tremendous loss and suffering whenever those things, whenever the things that we want, we don't get them or we lose them, and things that we don't want come and hit us in the face at the, you know, these disasters that we would never choose to have. Um, but they're just going to keep happening as long as when we invest in those things, then it's a major blow when something goes wrong. And renunciation is simply recognizing that fact and recognizing that we need to turn our mind towards a different way of life if we want to stop that from happening and be able to start cultivating some kind of satisfaction and happiness and contentment that is, uh, is deep and pervasive and lasting. So... So this is the foundation, right? We can't, the, 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 the subsequent steps can't really, we can't really build the subsequent steps if they're not built on a foundation of, suff of, of renunciation. Renunciation is recognizing that it's not going to work out for me here if I keep doing the same um, running on the hamster wheel, the rat race that I've, that I've been doing thus far. It's, not, it's just not, I'm going to stay in, I'm creating the causes for my suffering by investing in things that are not going to work out by mistaking those things for having more importance in my life than they really do. Um, the practitioners of lesser scope, the, the main concern is avoiding a lower rebirth than the one I have now. Um, you know, we have... Basically, the, the Buddhism and, and yoga philosophy are mind science that take as their presupposition 
that consciousness is an active ingredient, maybe the active ingredient in how the universe works. And that consciousness is neither created or destroyed, it just changes forms, and this is what uh, is called rebirth. That when the body dies, the mind doesn't die, the mind stream with its collected experiences and habits is what drives the, the consciousness to, to form a new birth. So, um, the practitioners of lesser scope are are focused on that lower birth, on that next birth not being a lower one. Like, let's try to make it at least as good as this one, if not better. And so, one of the main practi uh, practices for the practitioners of lesser scope are what are called the um, the the ethics of they're called freedom vows, practicing ethics relating to not harming others. So when we stop planting the seeds to harm others, when we stop planting the karma to har of harming others, then that means we are reducing the amount of harm that's going to come back to us in the future, according to a simplistic view of, of karmic mechanics, causal mechanics. Um, so by definition, if you're approaching these practices with the intention of of uh, making this this life better, the one that we're currently in, without concern for the future, that's technically not a spiritual practice at all. Like the sine qua non, the, the defining factor of a spiritual life, is that you're thinking about your karmic, your karmic evolution, your cosmic evolution, way beyond the scope of this particular individual biological organism. So practitioners of lesser scope have recognized that they're going to be stuck in the cycle of rebirth indefinitely, and that there's not really um, that there's not really anything else we can do other than to try to not harm other people and thus not send ourselves to lower re lower births like an animal or a hell being or whatever else. There's several colorful descriptions of what the lower births are like, which we'll talk about at a future time if there's interest. So the practitioners of medium scope uh, the practitioners of medium scope recognize that even if I were to, end, to, to bring a complete end to my own suffering, like say I can go to some kind of neutral place where I'm just sort of like blissfully absorbed in my own consciousness, that that is not actually going to produce true lasting happiness either. Because then you look out from that place of pure neutrality and you're going to look around and see all the other beings in the universe that are still trapped in suffering. And that that's not, and therefore, that's not going to be that's not going to be true lasting happiness if you're just like, well, I'm up in here in my ivory tower, and y'all schmucks are gonna have to figure it out for yourself. Bodhicitta is the recognition that that true happiness, true peace, can only come when all beings have true happiness and true peace. And in fact, that that I can't have true happiness and true peace until all beings have true happiness and true peace. So the the lesser scope version of nirvana is like, I can make all of my pain go away, and I'm just going to hang out like in a cosmic jacuzzi forever without any pain anymore. And Bodhicitta recognizes that the cosmic jacuzzi has everybody else in it. And you're going to look around, you're going to be in the cosmic jacuzzi, and you're going to be neutral, but it's still going to be a cesspool. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. It just doesn't make sense. And so the, the um, practitioners of middle scope realize that they need to drag everybody else out of suffering too. That it's, just, that it's just not sufficient. That it's impossible to get out of suffering for oneself unless one ensures that, that everybody else 
is going to get out of suffering, out of uh, the cycle of suffering as well. So this is a, a level of morality called the bodhisattva vows. So Buddhism has this thing, I mean, I'm mentioning vows. Buddhism has a thing called vowed morality because at any point, if we have a mental affliction attack, anger, a profound overwhelming anger or jealousy or something like that, then you know, our code of conduct goes out the window and it's just like whatever I do need to do to make this particular apparent problem go away. So we have vowed morality, which is the set of guidelines that, um, you know, that we can habituate our lives to following these, these guidelines so that we are able to better temper our reactivity. So the, the level of vows associated with the practitioners of lesser scope, as I mentioned, are called the freedom vows, and these are vows of not harming others. The, the level of vows associated with the middle scope are called the bodhisattva vows, and these are a set of vows that are all of the different ways that we can not only not hurt people, but actively help them. So the lesser scope is, I'm going to stop creating new bad karma. And then the middle scope says, well, I'm going to start creating, not only am I going to stop creating bad karma, I'm going to start creating a ton of good karma. And so the bodhisattva vows are, there's 200 of them or something like that. And there's a lot of them are easy. I mean, it's like accepting invitations, you know, and um, helping people who ask for help and stuff like that. I mean, they're like quite obvious, but it goes into the huge amounts of detail, all the different things that we unconsciously don't notice ourselves not helping other people just out of this sort of casual habit of self-cherishing, you know? And so the, the goal of the, the middle path of bodhicitta is to develop the bodhisattva worldview. And a bodhisattva is somebody who is obsessively laser-focused on being the next messiah, basically basically becoming a being who is capable of lifting other beings out of suffering. And so the culmination of that is, uh, is when that worldview permeates your whole, your whole experience and everything that you do is motivated by, by bodhicitta. So the third scope, practitioners of greater scope, uh, and the handout here, it says correct view. Um, sometimes it's called worldview. The uh, more technical Buddhist terms are used, that are used are emptiness or voidness. Um, but the practitioners of greater scope recognize that we can stop hurting other people and we can start helping other people. But the magic ingredient that's going to turn those activities into enlightenment is a deep understanding of how the universe is working, a deep understanding of metaphysics, a deep understanding of wisdom. And, uh, and in brief, that view is that things are not coming at us, things are coming from us. That the universe that we perceive is a product of our perception, not a product of objects, objects that are out there randomly waiting for you to run into them the subject-object perceptual matrix is the fundamental nature of the universe. So the practitioners of lesser scope are trying to avoid a lower rebirth. Practitioners of middle scope are trying to 
help others get out of suffering and practitioners of greater scope is trying to end suffering for all beings in the whole universe period and and uh and all three of those are necessary like w wisdom emptiness is all very exotic and and attractive but it doesn't mean anything if it's not deeply infused with renunciation and bodhicitta it's useless without it but likewise altruism and compassion are useless without wisdom and so this is one of the unfortunate things is that people can be really kind but if they're not paying attention to why then they're still not planning good karma really you know they're planning middling karma at best so that's a description of the that's the overview description of the path um, next we're going to do a description of the result which is the the two bodies of a buddha and um, this is as you may be able to guess the physical body of a buddha and the mental the the mind of a buddha the, the physical body of a buddha and the mind of a buddha and they call them the two bodies of a buddha um, the two bodies are the form body called also called the rupakaya and the dharma body also called the dharmakaya kaya means body um, And there are, there are further breakdowns of this. Um, the form body is broken down into the Sambhogakaya. Here we get into some more technical Sanskrit terminology. Again, this is, uh, oh, this part's not in the handout. So the Sambhogakaya and the Nirmanakaya are the two aspects of the physical body of a Buddha, Samboga and Nirmana. The Sambhogakaya is called the bliss body of a Buddha. And so this is how a Buddha, this is how a perfected being, um, a Buddha is a being who has woken up to the nature of reality. Buddhahood means um, a lamp that dispels darkness. So enlightenment is actually a great translation for it because it means to light something up and then thus dispel the darkness. So, um, and there's so much relig loaded religious ter terminology that um, it helps to define these in ways that helps us understand them in a kind of a broader context outside of merely studying Indian philosophy or, or Tibetan philosophy. So Sambhogakaya is how a Buddha perceives themselves. They are, their body has no pain. Their body feels only delight. They're hanging out in a in a realm of like pure paradise where all the other Buddhas are hanging out, making offerings to each other because that's what Buddhas do is they teach and make offerings, and so they make offerings to each other. So it's just like this party universe where everybody is giving each other gifts and everybody's happy. The the other aspect of the the Buddha's physical body is called the Nirmanakaya. The Nirmanakaya is the emanation body of a Buddha. Because Buddhas are ultimately compassionate and ultimately loving, um, they are continually helping other beings. And in order to do that, they, you know, we can't necessarily see Buddhas even if they're already in our world because it's a, it's a product of our own karma as to whether or not we can perceive a Buddha. What we perceive is driven by our karma. And so if we perceive another being, 
we don't know if they're if they perceive themselves as a Buddha or what they perceive themselves as. We can only experience our own perception. So, although a Buddha can perceive themselves as being in total bliss, the uh, the people that they're interacting with might not see them that way. And so this is the 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 nirmanakaya is how the Buddha emanates physical bodies. Um, the, it says that the, they, they, they uh, manifest an infinite number of, of physical bodies spontaneously without um, forethought or um, you know preconceived strategy. They just, inf they just immediately know what other beings need and they send physical bodies to those people. And so the, and, they, and again, they don't appear as a Buddha like we see in the illustrations with like three eyes and sometimes with flames and all the cool shit they've got. Um, they just appear as ordinary people or as phenomena. They're not limited in that way. And so a Buddha is simultaneously living in a paradise and emanating all of these physical forms to serve infinite numbers of beings on infinite numbers of planets simultaneously. The Dharmakaya, uh, the mind of the Buddha, the mental body, is also broken into two um, segments. The, the Jnana Dharmakaya and the Svabhava Dharmakaya. The Jnana Dharmakaya is the aspect of the Buddha's mind that has omniscience. And that's how a Buddha knows what all the other beings in the in the universe need, and that's how they're able to then emanate the, the uh, nirmanakayas to those beings, because they have this perfect understanding of the whole universe and, and its all of its intricacies. And the svabhava dharmakaya is called the emptiness body, and so this is how the Buddha is simultaneously to all the other things we previous men, previously mentioned. They also are directly perceiving how all phenomena are lacking inherent existence other than what is perceived to exist by the perceiver. So, the, um, the, the form body, the physical body of a Buddha is, is produced the, the cause for the form body of the Buddha is the first two of the principal paths, renunciation and bodhicitta, um, because these, tr these are what lead to the collection of merit, which is the collection of altruists, which is building the, building the um, momentum of positive altruistic act actions towards others, ultimately produces a perfectly happy body, a perfectly content blissful physical body that is simultaneously capable of emanating countless forms to help others. And then the greater scope, wisdom, correct worldview, is what produces the dharmakaya, the, the mental body of a Buddha. And that's the aspect of the Buddha that allows them to understand perfectly what is happening. So that's uh, the goal. We've got the path and the goal. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what um, about what to do in order to get on the path. And 
the root of the path is finding a teacher. Um, this can mean a lot of different things, and I am going to go into a list here in just a moment of several different kinds of teacher. In fact, I think I'm going to go into that right now. Um, the there's a lot of different ideas about what a, uh, a spiritual guide, a spiritual teacher looks like. You know, we have a lot of, uh, I mean, we have a lot of guru stuff in, in America, and we've seen a lot of gurus go bad. You know, we've had a lot of gurus turn out to be, or appear to turn out to be, um, charlatans or womanizers or capitalists or whatever. You know, I mean, it's there's they, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, it seems like. Um, but, you know, that's a specific, I think that's largely in part because we're culturally projecting things onto the gurus that they're not really available for. Um, so, um, but at its most basic, you know, a teacher is meant, uh, I mean, what is meant by a teacher here is somebody who can help you decipher the map and help you figure out where you are on the map and help you orient yourself, you know? Um, it's not a um, it's not a, a, an authority figure that you give your power to. Um, it's not um, it's not a source of absolute truth that you should believe every word that comes out of their mouth as if it's solid gold. You know, um, these practices don't work unless you try them. They don't work. Just believing them, having faith in them, and believing them is insufficient. And in fact, maybe is even a step backwards, right? This, these are assertions about how you can change your own mind in order to change the universe. And you can't just just believe in that and have it happen. You have to put the teachings into practice. You have to put the advices into practice and struggle with them. Figure out what works and what doesn't, and why is it working, what isn't it working. And then a teacher is somebody who you can like compare notes with and. And, um, and uh, you know, have a connection and dialogue with about it. So um, I, have, I have the 10 qualities of a teacher. But before I go into the 10 qualities of the teacher, I have a list of eight types of Dharma teacher. Um, by the way, this is all from the Gelukpa. This is all quite strictly from the Gelukpa presentation, Tibetan Buddhist Gelukpa presentation. Um, and... The Gelukpas are, you know, there's lots of different styles of Buddhism. There's like meditation-focused Buddhism, and there's like uh, service-focused practices and stuff like that. Well, the Gelukpas are list Buddhists. The Gelukpas are all about making itemized lists and, and bullet points and all that kind of stuff. So um, it lends itself very well to this kind of academic pre presentation, but that maybe is an explanation of why there's always like three of this and eight of that and ten of the other thing and five of this other thing because it's all the long rim is very like broken down systematically like that so this is something um the eight types of dharma teacher I, I wish that i had been exposed to this earlier on because i personally got mixed up about what which person was which role in my life and then i started expecting things from a teacher that was not the role that they were available for and, um, and I think I could have saved myself a lot of heartache if I had heard this list early on. So, eight types of Dharma teacher and the type of student that that teacher connects with. 
The first is the Buddhist professor, and the student is a student of Buddhism. This is an academic presentation of Buddhism based on scriptural training and um, is basically the nuts and bolts, the factual presentation of, of what Buddhism is and how it works. And so that's what we're really doing here, is we're going through systematically, and I'm just giving you the facts and providing you with scriptural resources to back up what I'm saying so that you know that I'm not just making this up and this is coming from Pabonka Rinpoche and Jetsongkapa and all the way back to Atisha and eventually all the way back to some bona fide enlightened being who we assume is Gautama Buddha, but there are we have others to pick from like Nagarjuna as well. Um, the second is a, a Dharma instructor and Dharma pupil. Um, this is the from the point of view of practical application. So as opposed to just saying this is what it says in the books, this is more like here's how to apply what the books say in your personal life. The next is a meditation or ritual teacher and a trainee. So this is again a practical, uh, a teacher who's in a role of, of the, conveying the practical aspects of either meditation or ritual. Um, those, you know, med meditation and ritual are different things. There's quite a bit of elaborate ritual in, in Buddhism, but it's not usually uh, introduced until a person has gained quite a bit of facility with the three principal paths because the rituals are really more about how you put these into practice and if you and it's again the same kind of thing where it's like if you start with the ritual stuff but you don't have the academic training and the dharma instruction and the meditation instruction then it's just cultural dress up and we're pretending to be asian and we're just escaping from our lives you know we're not actually doing any spiritual practice so anyway meditation or ritual train uh teacher uh, practical aspects of meditation and ritual. Uh, a spiritual mentor and disciple. Uh, this is someone who guides some uh, who guides another along a path. And so again, we're like we'd be working with the Lam Rim, and we're we're again talking about somebody who like sits down. This is more like a counselor type role. Who's like, where are we on the map? What are we struggling with? What's the best practices that are going to help you move forward from where you're at? Because it changes. You know, it's different day to day, month to month, year to year. Uh, vow preceptor and vow progeny. Um, I mentioned the vows, the the um, freedom vows and the bodhisattva vows. Um, so the vow ceremony is a formal ceremony that happens in Buddhism where the vow preceptor is in a fancy outfit and they're on the podium and then you clasp your hands and promise to keep the vows and so on. It's very important that the person who's giving you the vows is somebody who you have a lot of respect for because that's an important part of the vows being firm and strong. You know, you take your vows from strength. I mean, there are, there are like Tibetan and Indian Buddhists who come through town and they give vow ceremonies to hundreds of people. Maybe they even do it in Tibetan language and the audience doesn't have any idea what's going on, you know? So those vows are not going to be very strong in those people um, compared to if you take a, if you, if you promise in front of somebody who appears to you as somebody who has high spiritual qualities, you say, I'm putting my foot down, I'm putting a stake in the ground that says from this point forward, I'm gonna, I'm not only going to be, a, I'm not just gonna be kind of a good person, but I'm actually like making an effort. I'm going to keep track and, and grow in this way. Next one, number six in the list is a Mahayana master, Mahayana disciple, 
Um, this is someone who is working directly with the student, um, develop, teaching methods for developing bodhicitta. So Mahayana is, this, is the school of Buddhism that is primarily focused on the path of medium scope. And um, so uh, a Mahayana teacher is going to be focused on techniques called lojong. That's another Tibetan word, lojong, um, which are radical methods for deconstructing, self-cherishing, so that one has more capacity for service to others, which is what creates the um, positive forward momentum to uh, eventually get that, you know, the ability to like escape the gravity well of suffering, you know. So, <coughs> um, one of my teachers calls Lojong in, in a desire to be. Um, um, can't think of the word at the moment. Controversial, maybe is the right word. Anyway, he, he uh, translates, transliterates into English lojong as driving a car bomb into your self-cherishing. So this is meant to invoke that these are powerful techniques. These are, these are like, this is like you're going to war against your sense that I'm the only one in the world who's important. Because that belief that I'm the only one in the world who's important is actually what's the source of all of the suffering. One of the most well-known um, practices in Lojong is um, Tong Len, the practice of taking and giving. It's a meditation practice for um, in which you visualize that you have the capacity to take the suffering of the world and transmute it into joy and love and radiate it back out there. Um, this is a pretty well-known Tibetan meditation, and it's an a excellent characteristic example of Lojong which is what your Mahayana master is going to be working with you on. Um, next in the list, number seven, is the Tantric master and disciple. Um, Tantra is a, uh, a version of Mahayana that relies very heavily on archetype and ritual to uh, work powerfully and dramatically on the subconscious to, to again, dramatically accelerate spiritual evolution. And then eighth on the list is the root guru, or the heart lama, as they sometimes say in Tibetan. And this is the person who most powerfully opens your heart and inspires you to, to practice dharma and turns your mind towards the dharma. So, you know, the problem that I encountered was that I was encountering Buddhist professors and dharma instructors and meditation teachers and vow preceptors, and I was trying to fit them into the heart guru box. You know what I mean? Because that's what we want, right? That's what we really want is like the guru who like cracks your heart open and brings tears to your eyes and like convinces you just by being in their presence that all this stuff might be real and actually works, you know? You've met somebody who like in your mind might be a Buddha. Like they're good enough that they maybe are a Buddha and it's just my own obscurations that are preventing me from seeing that. That's true of everybody, of course. But the root guru is the one who like it hits you when you're around him, you know? And you can't fudge that. You know, you can't just be like, I've seen, I've seen like root guru speed dating scenes. Not, they, that wasn't the intention, but, I, but in certain spiritual communities where everybody's like, oh, I got to find me a root guru. And they're just like, they're just like doing this like Tinder style dating where they're like, are you my root guru? No, no, you're not my guru. Are you my root guru? No, no, you're not my root guru. And they just like kind of sleep around figuratively um, trying to find the root guru. And the thing is, to that's something that has to come spontaneously and um 
And not everybody who gets in front of you and teaches you about Dharma from like a scriptural or meditation instruction point of view is necessarily going to have that profound, deep impact that whenever you think of them, you're like, oh yeah, this is the purpose for my life. Um, incidentally, the word guru um, has English cognates such as gravity, gravitas, and grave. So a guru is literally somebody who is heavy in your world, has a heavy presence. I uh, am a big fan of learning the Sanskrit and the English cognates of the Sanskrit. It's really helpful to, to know like guru, like guru, guru, gravitas, you know, it's very, I find that very helpful. So um, now that we know what kinds of different, what different kinds of teachers we're going to run into, we're, um, we are on heading 4A now, uh, 6A, excuse me, in the, in the handout, if you're following along. And um, we are talking about the 10 qualities of a good teacher. Um, this is, uh, in, the, in the list you'll see that these are in quotes, and the reason is, is because those, these phrases are pulled directly from a text called The Ornament for the Mahayana Sutras by Maitreya, who is the future Buddha. The next Buddha is Maitreya. And because Buddhas exist outside of space and time, they can write texts in the quote-unquote future and then have those texts emerge in the quote-unquote past, which is our quote-unquote present. Um, and this is just the kind of fun things you have to wrap your head around when you start dealing with metaphysics because it ain't linear, you know? Linear time is an illusion. And Buddhas know that. Buddhas are not existing trapped by the limitations of linear time. So... Um, it's worth noting that if the Bodhisattva vow is to bring all beings out of suffering and wisdom is developing the understanding of how that's happening, then um, logically you have to realize that Maitreya is you. Maitreya is gonna, you are gonna be Maitreya. So a little bit of a mental gymnastics there that we're now reading a book that you're going to write in the future and um, transmit back to the past for you to learn today. We're all, each of us is going to be Maitreya in our own universe, you know what I mean? Um, so here we go. Ten qualities of a good teacher from the ornament of the Mahayana Sutras. Uh, number one, controls themselves well. Uh, this means disciplined and that they've mastered the, the vows of, of morality. That they are not um, misbehaving in public and mistreating other people. That they have they've mastered um, discipline and vowed morality. Number two, at peace. Um, this means that they are uh, calm and contained and not agitated, stressful, anxious kind of person. That they are, that they are mellow. They've passed. They've pacified the gross mental afflictions of of uh, anxiety and stressful stuff. High peace. The next one means that they have developed some meditation, some capacity for meditation, that they are able to um, go into meditative states that they're not, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, you can't judge the inside of another person's mind, but you know, that they have developed some skill and facil facility with meditation, so you can like assume that somebody who's like jiggly and restless and is like always bouncing their foot and stuff like that hasn't really learned how to pull the energy in and to concentrate it in meditation. 
I'm not going to judge people who bounce their feet because I don't know what's going on in any of their minds, but that's what we're looking for with high peace is that they are uh, well, well contained, thoroughly pacified. Number four, spiritual qualities that exceed. Uh, this means that they, that you see them as having qualities that are better than your own. Um, in particular, of course, in what you want to learn from them. Because, I mean, in some ways this is self-evident. You don't, you wouldn't, if you want to learn a new task, a new skill, you wouldn't go find somebody who's worse at that than you are and then ask them to teach you. You're going to go find somebody who already knows how to do it and who's better at it than you and you look up to them and, um, and that's how you identify that they have qualities that exceed. But in this case, it means particularly spiritual qualities. Number five, great efforts, um, means that they are energetic and that they're willing to work hard for their students' success, that they um, enjoy, that they enjoy teaching, and that they want to be there for the students, and that they're willing to keep showing up for the students, and they're willing to work hard and, and prepare their class materials so that they're they show up with and, and they intend to give you something worth your time, you know? Rich in scripture, this means that they're um, well-educated in a spiritual tradition. Um, in the modern world, really, they should be well-educated in at least one spiritual tradition, preferably more than one spiritual tradition. We don't live in a, a secular parochial world anymore, and those kinds of parochial attitudes of one religion is better than another religion just don't belong anymore. Um, we need to be looking for the, the ways that these... Uh, the way that these traditions are, you know, synergistically reinforce each other. What are the common themes that are true of all world philosophies and all world beliefs? So um, that they're well-educated in one spiritual tradition is a necessity, that they, um, have the, that they have a complete system, that they're not just picking bits and pieces from here and there, um, but ideally that they're well-educated in more than one system because we just... We have Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, Judaism, all overlapping in the same society. And any spiritual teacher who wants to try to connect with the population needs to be able to uh, have some facility with being able to talk to all of those traditions about the central unifying themes that all of those traditions share. Um, deep realization of suchness. Um, this is a really special one. What it's referring to here is what we call colloquially the direct perception of emptiness, which is a um, an experience that occurs in deep meditation in which the subject-object um, relationship breaks down and the meditator uh, experiences themselves as being unified with all existing phenomena, all beings and phenomena in the universe. Um, it's a, from what I've heard, it's a high meditational achievement. Um, but, you know, maybe it's closer than we think in, you know, maybe we're experiencing this in small ways already. Um, but uh, this means that they have some, that they have some facility with wisdom, that they have some understanding of metaphysics, subjectivity, um, karma and emptiness. And ideally that they have um, mastered that awareness, that perceptivity in meditation, and they're able to evoke it as they need to. Um, number eight is a master instructor. Uh, this simply means that they have the um, skills to teach. Um, you know, specifically the techniques of conveying information from one person to another, you know. Um, there are many great scholars who are not necessarily great teachers and many great orators who are not necessarily uh, 
well-educated or uh, great scholars. And so you do, they do need to have the skills to be able to, to teach. Number nine, an image of love. This means that they, um, they possess themselves in such a way that they are showing loving concern for others, that they're not a curmudgeon or a jerk. You want them to be, I mean, of course, you want a teacher who's kind-hearted, right? Uh, in part because that's an important quality we're trying to cultivate ourselves, right? And, if, and when we choose our teachers, we're going to, the people who we choose as our teachers are the qualities that we're going to develop ourselves uh, along the way. And so, of course, we want them to be extremely warm and loving and uh, have compassion for others. And the last one, number 10, beyond becoming discouraged. Beco beyond becoming discouraged. Um, it means they're not going to give up on their students. No matter how difficult their students are, that they're not going to give up on them. So this is like the dream team wish list. And um, of course, it's not going to be easy to find somebody who has all of these qualities. But um, we start with somebody who has as many of those qualities as, as uh, we can hope to find. And then we work on them by working on ourselves. Because, because the subject-object perceptual matrix is the fundamental nature of the universe, our teacher can come to us, however our teacher comes to us, however we see them is dependent on our perception. And so we're lucky to have somebody who has maybe half of these characteristics, then we cultivate seeing the remainder of those characteristics in them. And as we cultivate the karma to see more and more beneficial qualities in our teacher, then those qualities will sure enough emerge. And then we will begin to see those qualities in more and more and more people. And then eventually we'll see everybody as our teacher. And that means we're very close, you know, including the people who are um, not kind to us. You know, if we see, if we can cultivate the facility to see people who treat us unkindly as coming from a, a realm that we don't really understand and they're here to provide an appropriate teaching, then we let them, you know, we let them off the hook. They're not being a jerk who's doing this thing to me. Instead, they are the infinite compassion of the Buddha emanating in this, in this particular way to evoke these feelings in me so that I can work with them in a mature way. There's a Buddhist joke, kind of, I don't know if it's a joke or not, but I think it's a joke. I think it's funny anyway. So um, Shantideva, who's a, a famous Buddhist who wrote uh, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, um, he has an anecdote in that book in which he says, if you cultivate, you should be grateful for people who irritate you because those are the gurus who teach patience. And there's a pitfall of developing too much patience if you develop too much patience, you will eliminate irritating people in your world, and then you won't have anybody to teach you patience, and your patience might go away. So be grateful for irritating people, because those are the ones who are helping you to generate positive spiritual qualities. So the three qualities of a good student. Um, this is quoted from the 400 stanzas, a text by Aryadeva. Um, Tsongkhapa quotes this. And so we are quoting Tsongkhapa, who's quoting Aryadeva. Um, the, the three qualities of a good student, um, free, pre, free from preconceptions. 
um, that they're open-minded, that they're nonpartisan, they're not coming in with a bunch of ideas that they already think they know everything. You can't really learn if you think you already know more than the teacher does. And uh, whether you're right or wrong, it's just pre it prevents learning from happening. So necessary to, before going into any teaching, whether it be a spiritual teaching or otherwise, really, but this is particularly important with spiritual teachings, is to be open-minded and not come in with preconceptions that are like ready to disprove or debunk whatever you're about to hear. Um, number two, this is 7B actually, intelligent, um, particularly spiritually intelligent. Uh, it doesn't refer to intelligence quotient or how many degrees you have or what kind of mathematics skills you have. It's referring to um, a natural sense of ethics, an ability to have a kind of sense of what the difference between right and wrong, um, the ability to, to discern when you hear somebody say, the path to happiness is helping other people to be happy, as opposed to the path to happiness is being as selfish as possible. Spiritual intelligence is going to be able to tell one of those has some truth to it, and one of those it does not have truth to it. Um, another thing we like to say commonly is the, the knowledge of knowing what to give up and what to take up. What's going, what kinds of behaviors and activities and lifestyle choices am I going to make that's going to help my spiritual life and what kinds of activities and behaviors are going to inhibit my spiritual life. And C, high spiritual aspirations. This is referring really to diligence, that they are going to work hard for their goals, that they have high aspirations, that they're, that they, and that they're going to be willing to put the nose to the grindstone a little bit. So here we have, conversely, the three problems of a pot, which is a metaphor for what's, what not to do as a student. And the three problems with the pot, the, the three things that are going to make a pot not work properly, are if it's overturned, dirty, and broken. And so this is a metaphor. Overturned means closed-minded, right? Nothing can get in because the, the pot is not available to put new contents into it. Uh, dirty refers to um, having preconceptions and, um, and not being open-minded. Uh, I guess the first one is open-minded in the sense of being receptive. The second is being open-minded in the sense of not having other ideas and wanting to like wrestle or disprove the teacher. Um, and the third one, broken, is we have the great metaphor in one ear and out the other. And that's what, you know, you can put whatever you want into a broken pot, it's just going to seep out the bottom if they're not paying attention. They're not, it's not going to have any place to land. So, always remember the three, the three problems of a pot and, uh, and, and don't have those problems. So there we've, dis we've, dis we've discussed what is the path, what is the path, what is the goal, what are the characteristics of a person who is guiding you along the path to the goal, what are the characteristics of somebody who is being guided as a student, and the last thing we'll touch on is the characteristics of an authentic teaching. We've got the teacher, we've got the teachee, we've got the teaching now. Um, the three characteristics of an authentic Dharma teaching, taught by a authentic, bona fide, enlightened being. This is pretty subjective because many of us have, don't have any first-hand experience of an enlightened being, but 
if we um, have that if we have the attitude that enlightened beings exist and that that's an that's a state that is um, accessible to us that those beings are leaving breadcrumbs behind for us to follow and so this teaching is coming from a bona fide enlightened being um, B cleaned of any errors um, means that uh, as the, the as the teaching passes through the generations, um, people have misconceptions and bad ideas about it, and so it means that the the teachings have been tested and validated and reinforced, and bad ideas that have been introduced get removed. And C, I think the most important maybe brought true realizations and passed down in an unbroken lineage. Uh, this means that people produced results and then determined that it was worthwhile to pass on. These teachings didn't survive for 2,500 years because they didn't work for people, you know? It's not like people were like, well, this didn't work, but I'm going to make sure that a bunch of other people memorize it and do it too, you know? That's, that's, that they stand the test of time. And um, so this is... so. This is helpful because we have a we have like this huge explosion of modern religions that are kind of bits and pieces from different religions, and um, you know some of the there 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 are currently world religions that were invented only sixty years ago, like Scientology, for example, which was developed by a marketing genius who um, thought that starting a religion would be a more effective um, career path than starting a marketing firm, and and uh, Scientology thus was born. And um, maybe Scientology is a really great thing that's working really well for a lot of people, but it hasn't been around long enough for us to really know. And uh, so regardless of our personal opinions of these New Age religions, the bottom line is, have they withstood the test of time? And of the things that have withstood the test of time, what, you know, what are the common characteristics of all of those? So that covers our outline. That covers the class for tonight. And it looks like we went about one hour exactly, thereabouts. Um, so uh, you'll see here that there's a meditation assignment. And um, I, I encourage you to do this. It's, it says uh, 15 minutes on the importance of a spiritual life and of finding a good teacher and being a good student. Um, this, uh, it's worth mentioning at this point, there are lots of different types of meditation. You know, we, we all, there, are, there are, you know, perceptions of meditation about how like your mind is just supposed to be perfectly blank and flat and smooth. And that's totally unrealistic. No, nobody that I've ever encountered has experienced that in meditation. It's experienced meditators and beginner meditators alike are dealing with the mind's tendency to fly off to objects that are not the, the meditation object. So when doing meditation, don't expect your mind to stay on the object and don't get frustrated if you notice that your mind is flying off the object. Just gently notice that your mind is not on the chosen object. Gently bring it back and hold that for a moment. The, the real purpose of meditation is to, one of the major purposes of meditation is simply to notice when the mind is not doing what you want it to do and to catch it and then bring it back. It, you can put it on the object and hold it on the object and, and do your damnedest to hold it there. But the point is to notice when it's gone and not just get 
shanghaied and you come to 15 minutes later and realize that you've been daydreaming, you know, the whole time. It's to catch it when it happens and then, oh, oh well, that's not the object, gently draw it back. So um, three of the major types of meditation are review, analysis, and single-pointed concentration. Um, review is when you, um, when you go over and over something in your mind to really burn it in so that you, uh, that you it's basically memorization. And uh, review meditation is basically memorization. When, you're, when you've got some set of something that you want to know well, and you just recite it, repeat it until you've got it down and memorized. Um, the next is analysis. And this is when you are doing a logic thing. When you're meditating, when you're medit and the object of your meditation is, is this true or not true? What are the ways that make this true? What are the ways that make this not true? And, you just have, and this is just a process of, of debating yourself mentally while you wrestle with these ideas and, and come to, your, to a, uh, your own understanding of them. And then the third uh, in this list is single-pointed concentration. And this is what most people are thinking of when they're thinking of meditation, which is where you are, you are developing the meditative skill of being able to put the mind on an object and hold it there. And um, so single-pointed concentration, also called shamatha in Sanskrit, is like it's like one of the weightlifting it's like the weightlifting of meditation you know where you just or sharp it's like sharpening the knife you know um the point isn't to, ha to have a sharp knife the point is to cut something with the knife you know but if your knife isn't sharp it's not going to work so you have to work on sharpening the knife forging the tool and then once you have forged that tool then when you turn it on an, on a meditation object uh that's significant and important you'll have the ability to really stay on it so these um so these are, are all meditation skills to be developed um, concurrently. Um, I think it's worthwhile when you are approaching your meditation practice to just see where you're at that day. If your mind is more busy, then maybe a review or an, an analysis meditation is more appropriate. If you're, if you're already feeling relatively calm and focused, then maybe a single point of concentration meditation would be more worthwhile. Um, this meditation assignment is, um, is like a review analysis where we are asking ourselves the question, what, what does a spiritual life mean to me? How important is this to me? Where does it fit in my priorities in life? And if it is a priority for me, what am I going to do to cultivate it? And of course, as I've gone on and on about here, the recommendation is to find a spiritual teacher and work together closely with that person. <coughs> So um, let's conclude by um, setting a little dedication. Um, it's traditional uh, when completing a, a Buddhist teaching to dedicate the karma, dedicate the merit. Um, karma becomes more powerful when you give it away um, because being, you know, trying to hoard karma doesn't work. Karma works by, by making sure that other people are having those benefits. And so we can just visual, we can, um, you can do a visualization like visualizing golden light and collecting that in your hands and sending that out to the world. Um, I'm a little more pragmatic and I like to just simply visualize how if, if we put these teachings into practice in our own life, altruism and compassion, and we live our lives that way and we lead others by example that we can make an impact on the world. And if, if everybody who 
we know started applying these teachings and everybody who they know started applying these teachings, if everybody put this into practice just a little bit, how different would our world look? And uh, for me, that gets my stoke up to, to keep trying and keep practicing because it, 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 it helps me see that if I just try a little harder to, to hold bodhicitta in my mind and in my heart, that, that means I'm going to be that much kinder to people. I'm going to be that much less likely to fly off the handle when provoked. And that means I'm going to have more capacity to, to care for others. And that's what's going to have an impact in the world. And so that's how we can dedicate our practice of studying today. So thank you for your interest and your attention.